Hello and welcome to Stories with Legs, conversations that interest me and maybe you too. I am your host, Anne Hildebrand, and I am here with my update. My update is that I'm still working as a nanny here in Outback Queensland, and recently I got to go on a trip with the family um, because it is school holidays here. It is, I guess it's technically springtime, but it's getting pretty warm. It's We're getting into summer, and... We all packed up in the very awesome Australian camping way, which is to like have a camper and everything, like including a table. And Renee and I may have talked about this, seeing it down in Tasmania, like you just in swag, like the Australian swag is like a real bed, basically, that you bring with you to go camping. It's awesome. And so I got to go um, with this kind of serious camping style out into the desert of South Australia where a really interesting story actually happened in the history of Australia. And I kind of want to talk about that because I just found it fascinating. I mean, this is a place in the middle of like hot desert flies and just really exposed and dust. And there's a creek there and that creek does flood. And it's it goes through these systems of like decades of drought, like a decade of drought and then flood and everything will just kind of come to life and then drought will happen again for a long time and Aboriginal people have been living here for like 60,000 years and in these, you know, very long cycles of sort of um, plenty and then, you know, nothing. So it's a really fascinating place and on top of that there's this kind of interesting story that happened because the family was like, so we're going to the dig tree I'm like, dig tree, okay, I don't know what that is. And upon arriving, I learned this whole crazy story, which I'm about to tell to you now. So this happens in like the 1860s, I believe, the late 1860s. So we're thinking this is around the same time as, you know, just the American Civil War. So while American Civil War is going on in the States, we have down here in Australia, it's still like pioneer frontier time. And... This really kind of made me think of Lewis and Clark, where there were these sort of expeditions to go out and discover, you know, for the European settlers, this continent. And the government of South Australia offered a prize of 2,000 pounds for the first expedition to cross all of Australia going north and then come back south. So they were supposed to start from the south, like Melbourne, and then go up to the Gulf of Carpinteria, which is up at the top, and then come back. And there was this guy, Stuart, who was going to do it, leaving from South Australia. And so Victoria, so I, I should mention that South Australia and Victoria are both states of Australia. So South Australia is sending an expedition, and then Victoria wants to send an expedition, and they get these two guys, Burke and Wills, to lead it. And from the beginning, it seems kind of like haphazardly put together, like poorly planned. Like Burke apparently had no experience in exploration at all. And I guess I read on one sign that he had a notoriously bad sense of direction and that he like got lost getting home from the pub one night and kind of was known for being that kind of dude. And then Wills ends up being second in command because later on the the real second in command like quits. So they leave Melbourne with like two tons of stuff, including a bunch of whiskey. And they carried the whiskey, not for morale, for the guys who were going, which I can get it. Hey, I carried whiskey on the PCT and that was my luxury item, you know. But 
they carried whiskey to feed to their camels because one of the dudes had heard that it like combated scurvy in the camels. And yes, they were using camels for this, which is actually pretty badass. So, you know, they're, they're heading out from Melbourne and their goal is to go all the way up to the coast of, coast of Carpentry at the very top of Australia, uh, turn around and then come all the way back. And um, that's going to take a really long time, but they don't really have a good idea of it because no one has ever done it. So I guess they were taking a really long time, even from the beginning, with all of the shit they had. And so Burke, being the inexperienced leader that he is, is like, let's split up. And he splits the group in two, and he goes with the faster guys ahead. And he's like, yeah, we'll meet up with you later, maybe, kind of. And so they, the faster group splits and goes ahead. And they make it really far, actually. They make it up to Cooper Creek, which is where I ended up camping out. Um, about a week ago. So this is about halfway. So I was camped out in the middle of this like crazy desert thinking of these sort of pioneer like dudes uh, out there just walking and they were walking a lot of them because the pack animals were used to carry all of the stuff. And in, I mean, it's only even springtime now and the, there were so many flies. Like I was wearing my, my head net because they're pretty thick out there. I've, I've experienced thick mosquitoes, but I don't think I've experienced flies this thick. And just the, you know, the heat and the pretty much lack of shade. I mean, there are places where there's like mulga trees and stuff like that, but it's not a forest by any stretch of the imagination. And it's also not mountainous. So it's not like you could be like in a valley, you know, kind of hidden from the sun in the late afternoon or early mornings. It's just exposed. So they get up to Cooper Creek half of the team is up at Cooper Creek and it's like early December when they're there. So this is getting to be like peak heat. I mean, I was there in late September and I was like, wow, this is hot and lots of flies. And they were there in December. And the wise thing to do would be to wait through the summer and then start heading up in the fall the following year to get to the Gulf. But Burke wants to beat Stuart who has set off from South Australia and he doesn't know where he is because this is back in the days, you know, before like um, the internet. <laughs> so he doesn't know where Stuart is. So he's like, we got to keep going. So he's like, I know what a good idea is. Let's split our group up again. So he talks to this guy, William Brahe, and he says to Brahe, you have to stay here with a bunch of supplies. We'll go up to the Gulf and we'll come back and then we'll use all the supplies to head back down to Melbourne because they were like halfway. So, I mean, I could see where he was coming from with this. So he's like, Burke says to Brahe, wait for me, wait for us for three months and we'll be back in three months. So Burke and Wills and some other guys, King and Gray, all head up to the, to the coast and Brahe and a bunch of other dudes hang out, and they're supposed to wait there for three months till the other guys come back. So they do. They wait for three months, and in this time, a resupply mission was supposed to have come up from farther south to bring them more supplies even where they were, but no supplies come. Three months have passed, and Brahe's like, okay, well, I guess we'll keep waiting because, you know, there is no internet, so we have to wait. I have no idea what's going on. So they wait another month. So now they've waited four months. And then one guy is like really malnourished and having trouble walking. And Brahe is, you know, not sure if Burke and Wills like made it or not, or if they decided to walk to Queensland instead. 
So he waits another week and then finally it's like, I mean, there's what else can you do? There's no more food or anything. So the depot party at Cooper Creek like packs up and Brahe buries a box of supplies with a letter saying what happened. And in this tree, he carves the word dig. And then he tells them where to dig to find it because uh, they are trying to hide the food from the Aboriginal people who, by the way, didn't have any trouble getting food in all of this environment because they'd been living there for 60,000 years. But he carves it on the tree, you know, because they can't read. So um, he buries the stuff and leaves. They all set out at like 1030 in the morning. Um, the depot camp starts to go back south to civilization. And meanwhile, Burke and Wills and King and Gray made it up to the Gulf of Compradoria, actually. They made it like within like three miles. They couldn't actually get to the coast because it was like a swamp. But anyway, they got pretty close. And then they turned around, but they had a gnarly time getting back and Gray dies on the way back. And they actually, they took too long to get there and so they don't have enough food. So they're kind of on the brink of starvation already. I mean, they've lost one of their guys and at 7 o'clock p.m. on the same day that Brahe has abandoned the camp, Burke and Wills finally rock up. And they see the sign dig on the tree, and they do, they dig, they find the box, and they find out that just earlier that morning, um, Brahe and the depot camp had abandoned it. And Burke, who has no right to be angry about this, if you ask me, is like pissed, and he thinks that they should have waited. Well, anyway, whatever. Um, he's not thinking right also because he's malnourished. But basically, the depot camp people were only like 20 miles farther south, but because Burke and Wills were so, and King at this point, were so malnourished, they were like, we could never catch up to them. So Burke says, okay, rather than go back the way we came, which is the reasonable thing, and which was the thing the other dudes wanted to do, Burke decides, no, we should head toward this place called Mount Hopeless, which is the farthest outpost in South Australia of civilization. I still don't really get why he thought this was a good idea, but they do. They follow Cooper Creek. They're going to go head out to Mount Hopeless, um, and they kind of go on their way. They leave a note in the box saying what they're doing. So they head out. Okay, they leave. Meanwhile, Brahe, who has gone south with the depot people, before they reach civilization, he meets this other guy who was coming up with the supplies that he was supposed to have. And he's like, all right, well, since we have supplies, why don't I turn around with you and I'll go back to the Cooper Creek so that we can wait and see if Burke and Wills have gone back. Okay, so they go back to the site and they look around. They're there for like 15 minutes. They're like, doesn't look like anybody's been here. And they don't think to look in the box because Burke and Wills have hidden it so well and made it look like they hadn't dug there, again, because they're all worried that the Aboriginal people are going to dig it up, right? That Brahe figures that they haven't been there, so he leaves. Meanwhile, Burke and Wills are walking off toward frickin' Mount Hopeless. Their two camels die, and they're like, oh, well, without the camels... We can't cross the desert because they're supposed to carry our water. So we actually need to turn back and go back to the depot camp. So they do. They turn around to go back to the depot camp. And um, so it's Burke, Wills, and King. And basically, uh, they make it back, but I don't really know what else they think they need to do. They're totally malnourished and crazy by this point. And Burke and Wills end up dying. 
Um, oh, but before that, the Aboriginal people did try to like help them, like give them fish and stuff. But Burke, of course, shot at them because that's what you do. Then what was it? King ends up living because he basically mooched off the Aboriginal people and they like helped him out and he wasn't a total dick. And so they were like, well, we'll be nice to you. And he survived until a rescue party came. And that is the story of Burke and Wills which is insane. If you just think of all these near misses, I feel like Thomas Hardy couldn't have written that many near misses into a crazy story like this. And on top of that, it's like they succeeded, like they made it, they made it there, but then not really, which is in two ways. Like they, they missed it by like three miles and um, you know, they missed their, their coming home by like seven hours. And I guess Burke like blamed it on the guy dying because it took seven hours to bury him. Like, oh, okay, sorry that guy died. So um, it's just a really crazy story. And I got to stand there at the dig tree, the tree where they dug, they, they carved the word dig. And I got to go where uh, Burke died. And it was just a really crazy and cool place and a really cool story to uncover in the middle of like nowhere. It's so remote from everything. And it was awesome and amazing and wonderful. And on that note, I'm going to move on to my conversation with Carrie, who is the mother, the matriarch, the lady in charge of this family that I went with. And I recorded this conversation in the car with her on the way back driving from Cunnamulla to Quilpie. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But I'm sorry about the bad quality of the audio because we're in the car, but just take it as ambiance and you imagine that you're there, right? So without further ado, I will start off my conversation with Carrie. Developmental Road. Is that what it's called? Yep, that's what it's called. From Kanamala to Quilpie? Kanamala to Yulo. Okay. To Thargo is that road. We'll turn off it. Okay. And so we're coming from Kanamala. What is what is Kanamala to you? My hometown. But when you're in Kanamala, you ran the fruit and veg shop? Um, I got out of that the year Hayden was born. And um, I had to get out of shearing, so I went into that. Okay, because you were a shearer before that. Because I was a shearer. How was life that. as a shearer? It was good. I loved it. I miss it. Yeah, it's hard work and it's it's rewarding in a way though. Like yeah. So just as context, it's shearing sheep. Shearing right? sheep. For like how many hours a day? Eight hours a day. It's a lot of. It's very physically demanding. It is physically demanding. Is it mostly a, a bloke's job? Majority. Yep. Now, when I first started, it was kind of like um, you sort of looked down upon as being a female in the industry. Really? But towards the end of it, like my career as a shearer, uh, there's a lot more women. Any, have you had any other jobs? Shearer, fruit bed shop owner? Yeah. What else? I did 12 months youth work in self-harm substance abuse in Kanamala. I enjoyed that job, actually. Is that ice problem mostly? Well, ice wasn't around back then okay. so much. Um, yeah, marijuana mostly. And, and 
until they started experimenting. I suppose ecstasy and all that was around. Because we were just talking the other day how the problem now in Kanamala is really big with ice. Like, how many people live in Kanamala? Like, total population. Total population, probably a thousand. That's with the surrounding stations as well. Okay. And then, like, the amount of people on ice would be, like, what percentage would you guess? Oh, I don't know. Yes, a good 30%. Yeah, that's insane. That includes little kids, like, knee-high. Yeah. Little kids. And it's produced around here, too? Yeah. That's just really crazy. They've been given funding from one of the governments. I think it might be a federal to put a rehabilitation centre in Kanamala. There's three places, Kanamala, the Gold Coast, and Burke in New South Wales. Burke is bigger though, right? Burke is probably bigger. It's got a higher Aboriginal population, and I'd say nearly 60-70% drug abuse. It's known really badly. Speaking of the Aboriginal population down there, are there any, like, communities near here where Aboriginal people still live? Like, I know there are these kind of remote communities of people. No, not, not around us. Up in the Northern Territory, Western Australia, Northern, like, far Northern Queensland, there probably is. Um, but, yeah, not, not around near us. They're all sort of put back into the community. Yeah. Very simple. Right, but even here I've noticed that I see more Aboriginal people around than I did, like, in the cities. Yeah, probably. It just seems like... There, there's a lot around, but, like, they're all in housing or whatever else, but... Yeah. No one in Santa Canamala is an indigenous person or or related to type thing. Yeah, they preserve the culture fairly well. Um, it's a good thing in a way because you don't completely lose it, but then the history that goes behind it is lost because of all the elders that have died and haven't had the chance to pass the stories on and because of the white settlement you can't really go onto a place where the, the culture is or the heritage type history and um, they couldn't share it as well. Oh, with well, white people? Yeah, say like on this place here that we're at now, Manjari, there's, um, which is an Aboriginal word meaning big waterhole. Um, it's got Aboriginal heritage on it, but because of the white people that own it, they're like, well, you're not allowed on my place because it's my place. Right. So they can't get to uh, like a sacred spot or something like that to, to share their don't they have culture. some like native title stuff where like they could go on for certain ceremonies that they... They do on certain places, but it still has to be negotiated with the landowner. Right. Because yeah. out here, I mean, people own massive stations. Mm -hmm. Like, what would be an average size of that? Average 30 to 40,000 acres. And that would be like a cattle station? Sheep or cattle or both. Because the drought's been pretty bad. How, how many years has it been going on? I think it'll be second or third year that we're in now. It, they can last like a decade out here, right? The last one lasted a decade and broke with a flood. And Is we that had, the way it yeah. usually goes? So it's like drought and then flood. And then yeah, it breaks with a flood generally. Um, and like them, they're massive floods. You're isolated for a little bit, for say a week or two. Some places are longer, some are shorter. Right, because when I was driving out here, I saw all these signs for floodway, and I was like, why is it a floodway in the middle of the desert? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. Have you been around? I mean, what's been your experience of a flood? Um, in 1990, that was the biggest that I'd ever experienced in Katamala. We didn't have any flood levees or anything like that. 
it, it broke in, well, the house that I showed you of mum and dad's in town. The water, there's like a gully that goes to the back of it. It's just a natural low-lying ground. And um, when the river spreads out, it, it follows that course. And it come up around the back steps of there. And there was a chopper coming. They were going to airlift everybody out. And it, it didn't get as big as they thought or anything like that. Um, but... What was it? it? Broke the banks fairly well. We had a we had a couple of weeks off school, well, because <laughs> the school's right on the river. It was right. awesome. We're just going to drop in here and pick up some bolts. All right. Shall I pause this? Ah, uh, you can pause it if you want. Yeah. I realize that it sounds like we're just like pulling into a shop to pick up some bolts, but actually we're driving on a one-lane asphalt road in the middle of like red dust, and there's this dirt road leading off to the left, and that's where Carrie is turning down. Turns out it's the road to a station and someone has hidden some bolts under a cattle grate. That's what we're doing. Now, back. All right, we're back. You got <laughs> pick up some bolts for a stick rake for a dozer. It was the first bulldozer we started with, actually. Yeah, what's the history of that? Because that's got to be interesting. I got a little bit from Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, bet, I'll bet it was nowhere near what I would tell you, though. <laughs> well, yeah, so you fill me in. Rightio. Um... Pretty well, Anthony started out as a mechanic, he worked in town in Kanamala. And um, he did a trade where he got qualified as a diesel fitter. So he did, I'd say about 12 months out in the desert, like way out where we went fishing. And he'd spend six to eight weeks out there at a time. And then come back and board all his money and whatever else. And then he got a job, because um, he's always pretty keen on graders and whatever else, he wanted to go into earth moving. He got a job with um, a company, Biden, and what's his name, Mike, I forget his name now, Mike Gordon, and he owns a massive amount of properties around Australia. And he said, I want a road that links up all my properties um, in the salad bowl area. And he's like, yeah, rightio, I'll buy a grader and I'll go and do that. Okay. And that was his first ever road making job. Never built one before. He'd done plenty of power line stuff because the bloke he um, did his trade with, he, he owned earth moving gear, a couple of graders and dozers and stuff. And um, you got kind of roped into it from your connection with Anthony. That came first, right? You weren't like, we're business partners and then... Yeah, no. <laughs> No. Why, why didn't he like you shearing? Because it was hard on me. Right. And travelling and whatever else, he didn't think that the amount of money that you made was worth the, the effort that you put into it. Yeah. So, like, what, is that, what does it entail? Like, what are some techniques for shearing a sheep? It's all about technique. Yeah. Yep. It's are all they... about positioning of your, your body, your legs and your arms. And, but if you've got a good enough technique and um, style, your back holds up all right. I guess they would have perfected by now, like, the best way to do that. Well, I don't know if they've perfected it, but they've come a long way from back in the Jackie Howe days. How? What days? Jackie Howe. Who's that? He, he's a, um, an Aussie-renowned shearer. He could shear, I think it was 300 or something with the old hand shears. Okay. So, yeah, he was a bit of a legend. So, like... What is better about the merino wool? Is it really better? This is what I hear. Because yeah. a lot of hiking gear is all merino stuff. Well, obviously it's the best then, hey? Okay. 
It's cleaner. Um, it's not as hairy. Cool. Yeah. Well, can you tell cool. me one thing that you are excited about right now? Excited right now. I mean, you, you could take that to me right this very second, or in general at this point in your life. Uh, probably excited to go and do a bit more flying. Yeah. Flying, right? Right. You're learning to fly. Mama, I am. Yes, mate, we did. Nice. Well, cool, yeah, because that's actually one way people travel around the Outback, is they fly from place to place. They do. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I thought it was hilarious at the Dick Tree when it was like $11 per vehicle or aircraft. <laughs> like, in case you just landed here. Well, that's how Anthony went out and saw it. He went out in the aircraft first. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Well, I'm pretty excited about that, too, because the prospect of you guys flying around doing stuff's pretty cool. Yep. And yeah. in the meantime, we'll continue our drive to Quilpie. Thank yep. you for talking to me. If you hadn't picked up on it already, Anthony, who we talked about in this conversation, is Carrie's husband. And we talked a bit about how he started his earth-moving business, which after that first job, which you guys heard about, has become super successful. And they've actually had to kind of find that sweet spot between growth and, you know, being comfortable as a small business. So they're actually even, even having to control their growth. So I'm actually learning a lot from them about the way they kind of run their business. And listening to the conversation kind of made me think about my first job, which doesn't really have anything to do with anything I do now, but uh, it's just kind of interesting. I'm pretty sure my first job, if I remember correctly, was working at the Renaissance Fair. So I worked at the Renaissance Fair for like three or four years, I can't even remember. and. Uh, if you don't know, the Renaissance Fair is where people go and get dressed up in Renaissance clothes and talk Renaissance ways and uh, eat turkey legs as though that's what, you know, Renaissance people ate, even though I don't know that that was actually common or even a thing because turkey is a new world bird. But anyway, uh, that's, that's what I did. And my first job there ever was hawking pottery. So I would stand in the pathway and you know, yell about how people should buy pottery and you have to learn how to speak the proper way and dress the proper way. And it's actually a lot of fun. It's quite expensive to go and I don't know if I would ever pay to go, but working there was awesome. It was a lot of fun. And I think the best time I ended up, well, another time I worked there, I worked as uh, at a cinnamon bun booth, which is totally anachronistic and irrelevant. And my job was like, whatever, boring, but my boss was terrible, and um, that sucked. But my best time working there was when I worked as a maiden of mischief at the joust. So I got to like dance around uh, on the jousting field with a tambourine, and I got paid for that. And then my other job uh, that same year was to hawk for a game booth, which was for throwing javelins. And so I used to convince passers-by to pay $6 to throw three sticks at piles of hay. And somehow I did it. Like there's so many techniques you can use to get 
people to do this, especially in the context of a Renaissance fair. If you see a couple walking by, if it's a man and a woman, you go up to the woman and, because you don't want to go up to the man, right? Because, you know, that's threatening. You go up to the woman and you say, oh, you know, he needs to fight for your honor or whatever. So you get her to convince her boyfriend to do it. And this was surprisingly effective. And, you know, just lots of other little things you end up doing. Um, I remember at the cinnamon bun booth, when I was hawking cinnamon buns, I'd like, pretend to make someone into a sundial I could tell them that, I told them that I could tell the time using them as a sundial and really I would just look at their watch when I was doing that sometimes conspicuously as a joke other times not so much and then I'd just be like oh it's cinnamon cinnamon bun o'clock or whatever which is ridiculous but the thing with the javelin booth is that I actually got tips like I convinced people to pay six dollars for three sticks and then they tipped me for it. So, you know, I like to think that at least I learned some salesmanship skills there. But uh, what memory connections do you have about anything in the conversation or your first job or whatever? I would love to hear from you. And I also have internet still for the next two months. And after that, who knows when I'll have internet. So I would love to talk to you and connect and Skype and email and all that good internet stuff because we're not like Burke and Wills, right? We don't have to be missing like two ships passing in the night. And I would also like to thank Josh Reinhardt as always for helping with the tech side of this. Thank you, Josh. And thank you to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech for the music. And thank you to you guys for listening. I love you all and I would love to hear from you. So send me your memory connections or send me an email or Skype me or all that stuff. And I will see you next time, whenever that is. Merino wool, is it really better? This is what I hear, because a lot of hiking gear is all merino stuff. Well, obviously it's the best then, hey? Okay. <laughs>